Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 28th of March 2013. For newcomers, as always, I advise you to use the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and you'll start to understand the big system you've been born into, a system that your parents were oblivious of too, because we're living through a big, big business plan, a big, big agenda. It's been on the go for well over 100 years now, and much, much longer. In fact, if you go through all the different foundations and the name changes they've had over the centuries, but it's really we're getting guided towards this global system. And not just any old global system, but uh, one that will suit a very uh, special elite uh, to ensure that their offspring go off into the future, while the rest of us who help them launch them, it's like launching a rocket, will just die away like booster rockets. And it's, it's coupled with Darwinism and eugenics and so on. And that's really where we're all headed right now. And that's why so much of your tax money is going into genetic research and so on. It's not to help you down the road. After all, they're all complaining that there's too many people. Why would they help you and make you strong and healthy and live to ripe old age if that was the case? Uh, it's, it's either one or the other. What do they want? Then they do, they do not want a planet, uh, even this present population. They want to vastly reduce the population and so on. But at the same time, we are the herd, and the shepherds have to live off the herd, and they make sure it's a good profit for them as we all go down the tubes. So help us up the website. As I say, you've got lots of information on it. You find out who's behind it, the big foundations, the big clubs that they've formed worldwide, and how they help each other out, and how they literally work our minds too. Because it's not an item you can read anywhere from any media that doesn't have a spin on it and a PR marketing um, hand involved in it to make sure you get the right opinion at the end of your read. Remember, too, you're the audience that bring me to you. You can help me keep going by getting the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And you know that I don't bring on advertisers as guests who scare you and then sell products and so on. I just uh, tell you the, the sad truth. And it is sad because it's so sad that you've been trained not to really notice it. And it's sad, too, that you've been also trained not to even think about being involved and stopping it. That's a big one. Very deliberate act, too. So, as I say, from the U.S. to Canada, you can buy the books and discs or donate from uh, from the U.S. to Canada by using personal checks still. Or you can send cash or use PayPal. Or you can get an international postal money order from the post office to Canada. And across the world, you've got Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal. Remember, straight donations seriously are awfully welcome in these times of uh, inflation. You call it quantitative easing now. It sounds better, doesn't it? And we're going to austerity as well. And um, as I say, we much, much appreciated. But as I say, most folk are oblivious of the big organizations that run the world. Uh, we're the most studied species on the planet, always have been for thousands of years. Knowledge is never lost. Even when empires uh, collapse, they don't really just collapse by themselves. The ones who run the empires get out first, and they've already always set up a new one just to start all over again with. And uh, they take the knowledge with them. 
And that's how they rule the world, by understanding this kind of knowledge. The ancient philosophers in Greece were awfully good at telling you a lot about it, and even in their own day, of what they understood about human society and how to manage vast quantities of people. It's never changed. Only today it's such a vast quantity of knowledge, and plus if a massive tax base across the world and international organizations, they can certainly put think tanks complete think tanks on even the simplest little human problem to find out how to manipulate us and how to make things work for the advantage of those who rule. And believe you me, you are certainly ruled. You're taught to simply be happy, be narcissistic, and you're taught to ignore the problems of the world or even those around you, as long as you're okay. Narcissistic and hedonism was to be promoted for this particular time and by those who helped create the present culture. And they wrote about it 50, 60, 70 years ago. And it's worked like a charm. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. Now I've talked many times about the forms of mass mind control and behaviorism and and so on, because everyone's manipulated. And if you go back into even the 1800s, you, you find in the US and other countries, people are coming out talking about education, education, how all societies had to be educated. But what they really meant was they had to be kind of uh, given a particular kind of education and and have obedience to the state. That was almost foremost in those who hold power, obedience to the state. And it's been awfully, awfully successful. And even when you're taken over by another dominant minority that takes over government, they still enforce the same things, obedience to the state. So it doesn't matter who takes over. Most folks don't even notice when they've even been taken over. They just go along with it. And when you go through the history of uh, Edward Bernays, I've mentioned Bernays many times because... He really was given the, the job, and he had worked with many presidents of the U.S., different presidents, over his long lifespan, uh, in ways of manipulating the public opinion and creating public opinion. Very, very important, of course. And most folk always think, because we're, we tend to be egotistical in some way or another, that we're in charge of our own minds, but very few folk really are. Uh, we're indoctrinated at school to get the standardized opinion of the past, for instance, and we forget, too, that um, every tyrannical regime, you can be in one without even knowing it. You just slide into it and adapt very quickly to, to all the new normals that you're given. But um, every totalitarian regime always tells you how wonderful it is now, and they eradicate the past. They eradicate the past so you have nothing to compare the present with and see how bad it is. But Bernays is the same was a nephew of Freud, and Freud himself was another frontman for a massive organization that was trying to find scientific uh, reasons to, to change society, but things which people would believe in science, and science was being elevated above everything else, even reason, uh, in those days too. And once something got a, a scientific title to it, then you would listen more intently than if you simply had someone's opinion or some organization coming out. And so even in religion, they started bringing science to some even Christian churches, things like that. So they they brought in uh, this pseudoscience of psychiatry, 
And um, it's a fantastic history to psychiatry in itself and the things that they did to people and patients on, and in, with intent to cure them. And out of that, too, it was coupled with the eugenics movement from the very, very beginning. And they thought they could manipulate the minds of whole societies by using psychiatry. And plus, it was joined by behaviorism eventually. And the behaviorists joined it and uh, really got in on the act as well. But you, you'll find with behaviorism, they can do uh, so many experiments with society and, 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 and control groups that they can find out what does work and what doesn't work uh, to manipulate people in small settings. And if it works in a small setting, it will work in a larger setting too. So they all work together for control. Control is the most important thing for dominant minorities. That's what they're there for. Always control. But Bernays, as I say, had contempt of the masses. I think it was his niece said that eventually, that he hated the masses. He saw the, the people, especially Americans and so on, the Western cultures, which he hated um, for another reason, but he hated them. And he, he it was just too easy, he said, to manipulate their minds. In other words, you find contempt comes, the easier it is to use people. You become, you become contemptuous of them. I've always given the analogy, too, of some king uh, sitting up on his throne, and, and there's a few steps there, and some slave comes up and, and wants to, and he grovels, and he doesn't look in his eyes, because you mustn't look into a sovereign's eyes, you see. And he crawls up there, and, he, and, and then he gets to the feet of the king, and he starts kissing, and the king just boots him down the stairs, and he gets up again and does the same thing again. Well, each time he does it, the more he's despised by the king. And that's how people really are with those who, who suck up to them and, and, and keep getting abused. They despise you. And whole teams of experts today work with every single government. In fact, they're international, these experts. They work with them, with them all now. They even do speech writing for different presidents across the world from the same speech writers to make sure they're all on board. Standardized speeches, all globalism, globalism, globalism. So, as I say, Bernays was a big master of all of this. And he gave America the the consumerist society, basically, how to advertise and use unconscious impulses, bring them to the surface and transfer them from the unconscious and onto physical items like cars and things like that. And it worked awfully, awfully well. But he used a lot of sex as well. Things he'd learned, and not just from his uncle Freud, but from other people too, long before him. Because, you see, there's people down through the ages, especially in the American tile departments, who understand the techniques of manipulation of people to buy. Very, very important. And if you can use manipulations to make them buy, even when they can't afford things, you can use the same manipulations for other things too, political movements and so on. Or even, even fanatical movements like greening and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as I say, Bernays uh, went on, and even one of his relatives still runs a lot of the British propaganda yet for the British government. His name is Freud as well. But anyway, that's only one one character involved, but he had a massive impact, and he did work, as I say, with many presidents on big things, and including the post-consumer society as well. So we're manipulated from above, and most folk don't know it. And marketing came out of this whole uh, agenda, and marketers really are trained in very high sciences of mass manipulations. Things that sound silly in advertising, if they're discussing them amongst themselves, uh, actually work on the general populations. Sad to say. Very sad to say. But, uh, as I say, mass movements are the same kind of thing, and mass movements become fanatical 
Among society, you've got different personality types. And those who, who have got big chips on their shoulder especially will form groups. And the big boys know. And Bernays said this. He says, rather than form groups, look what's already in existence. If you want to sell things, for an example, or get a political movement going. Uh, and he, he said, whenever you go into a new city, this is before internet, of course, naturally, and all this kind of stuff. He said, you simply look up the telephone directories and you get all the different groups in the area, church groups, everything. And you try and get in and, and get your, your point of view and what you want across to them. And they become the army that promotes your ideas. So they use existing groups to start with, you see. And even though if you get those existing groups, even if they have a particular agenda, then you can you can manipulate them, warp them, and turn them off into a different agenda. That happens all the time. So uh, it's a very old science. They've used it in politics uh, many, many centuries ago. Same idea. If they get an opposition force, infiltrate, give them a great, fantastic ideal to, to fight for that's slightly similar to the first one that they're already formed for, and you warp them off into your own agenda, and they follow you. Sad, isn't it? That's so easy to do. Very sad. And so, as I say, they look for particular people who have got chips on their shoulder, grudges, and so on. And even the international revolutionary movement that Albert Pike talked about and um, Mazzini talked about, too, they were the heads of it at one point. Eventually, it transformed itself into the World Communist Society, and Lenin took over. But they also knew all of these tricks. They were all trained in these tricks of how to use mass man and different groups and use persuasion to win them over to you, what you wanted to use them for. And they would be the last to find out that they're getting used. Old, old techniques. And it's the same with the, the greening agenda too. Now, most folk think it's a grassroots thing that started off. It wasn't nothing of the kind, in fact. It's all to suit to the big boys at the top to control all of us. Under the guise of saving us. That's why it works so well. Oh, you're all going to die. You're all going to die. Give us all your power and your freedom and everything else, and we'll run the world in such a way that you'll live. It's very simple, isn't it? And it works terribly well. And, of course, it's done through repetition, 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 and, and particularly selected videos with the right camera angles and things that are all, all fake, generally, to terrify the bejesus out of you, as you used to say in Ireland. And it works awfully well. Now, People don't know the history of the Green Movements either. Tonight I'll put up an article, and it's from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. But it's quite an interesting article because this guy tells you a lot of the history of the Greening Movements. And as I say, it's usually for, for high political purposes, not to help the planet. We already see the carbon taxes coming in, the redistribution of wealth to more bankers. So it never goes to the public, it goes to the bankers at the top because they designed it all. They have whole bunches of marketers working on manipulation of groups to get the cash off them and get them working for nothing to, so, so that we'll end, all end up paying massive carbon taxes. Remember that the, the world that they've planned is where they can give us less of everything at a vastly more expensive price for the same things, like electricity. So they get stinking rich, even more than they are already, the big boys, and they give you a lot less in return, to save you all, understand? to save you, yep, in future generations and so on. Total power over everything. So this article is a save is, um, from Rupert Darwell, and it's quite an interesting little article. 
And he goes through it. He says, he's given a speech. And he says, I vividly recall listening to your CPS talk some six years ago. Global warming was a problem identified and tempted to see invented by scientists. He says, but you argued global warming policies are a matter for economists and preeminently for democratically elected politicians. And he says, second, using the IPCC's own numbers, the case for drastic action rested on people in the developing world being 9.5 times better off than they are today, rather than 8.5 times better off if climate change was left to its natural course. And that's true, that's what it came out and said. Yeah. And third, the superiority of adaptation over trying to cut emissions, because with adaptation, you can pocket the benefits of warmer temperatures while reducing the costs of coping with them. So I'd like to suggest a slight modification to the case for adaptation, which I'll come back to at the end of my talk. He said it was George Pompidou, the most neglected president of the Fifth Republic, and perhaps the most interesting, who said, There are three roads to ruin, women, gambling, and technicians. The most pleasant is with women, the quickest is with gambling, but the surest is with technicians. So I wonder what he would have said if he'd met a climate scientist. See, that's the fourth way. I'll be back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, talking about climate change and the rise of scientists, you see. Remember too, I've mentioned that Bertrand Russell and others talked about the scientific tyrannies that would come, and he was all for science taking over charge of the world, uh, tossing religion out the, out the way and the public opinion out the way, and scientists should just rule with no inhibitions, nothing to hold them back whatsoever and run the world properly on behalf of the elites, you see. So this, this ties in with this article I'm reading here by Rupert Darwell, and he says, he said, I wonder what he would have said if he'd met a climate scientist. For what distinguishes the age of global warming is that scientists, particularly climate scientists, had more impact on public policy and on the destiny of nations than in any other era. Karl Marx wrote that our great world, historic events, in our great world, that historic events happen twice. The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. With global warming and the role of scientists in directing the future of society, Marx's formulation can be reversed. First comes the farce, then the tragedy. It was the 1960s, and that was a cultural revolution. It was also a revolution to take over in ultra-America by a new dominant minority, by the way. It says in the early 70s that scientists first staked their claim to political power. When the West experienced its first environmental wave, scientists were amongst the most prominent riding it. Economic growth was in conflict with nature and environment, they argued. In 1972, 37 eminent experts, including five fellows of the Royal Society and 16 holders of science chairs at British universities, predicted the termination of industrial civilization within the lifespan of people then living. A choice has to be made. Uh, the scientists said, between famine, epidemics, and war on the one hand, or a succession of what the scientists called thoughtful, humane, and measured changes. They want to drastically reduce the population. They're still trumpeting that today. Few groups have collectively a worse uh, predictive record than scientists when it comes to the future of society. 
Nothing discredits modern bourgeois development so, so much as the fact that it has not yet succeeded in getting beyond the economic forms of the animal world, said Friedrich Engels. Engels had a point because it's not too much of a generalization to say that the, the economic form of the animal world represents the level of understanding of nature of natural scientists when they opine on economic processes. It says, fortunately, first time around, scientists' advice was ignored. And that's true. Fortunately, most folks all get away. Uh, although in many ways, the rhetoric of alarm was more extreme than it is now. And at that time, too, they were pushing, we're going to go into an ice age. And you got to hand it all. Man-made ice age, by the way. Just like man-made global warming. It says, in the first environmental wave peaked too quickly and broke even more rapidly. In October 1973, Egyptian tanks crossed the Suez Canal. OPEC's oil prices uh, shocks did what the scientists advocated. The economies of the West stopped growing. When growth disappeared, so too did the limits to growth debates of the early 1970s from the Club of Rome. That was the limits to growth. Unfortunately for us, the long tail of the second environmental wave propelled by global warming carries the active debris of militant green policies to de- decarbonize our economies, in effect trying to repeal the Industrial Revolution with the colossal costs involved in trying to do so. Because every discussion on global warming at some point comes back to the science, that's where I would like to start, specifically with scientists. I've already made one observation about scientists and their reliance on what Engels calls economic forms of the animal world. The second relates to the philosophy of science and the crucial question as to what constitutes a scientific knowledge. More surprising than scientists' lack of understanding of established economic concepts is their unfamiliarity with the epistemological bounds of their field of knowledge. In his 1962 classic, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn observed, it says, though many scientists talk easily and well about the particular individual hypothesis that underlie a concrete piece of current research, they are little better than laymen at categorizing the established basis of their field as legitimate problems and methods. Nearly half a century later, in one of the last lectures, the climate scientist Stephen Schneider made the same point somewhere differently. Very few people learn about the basic philosophy of science and how it works, Schneider said. As he put it, universities were handing out PhDs in science with no PH in them. And it's true. These are social political agendas, folks, and they just churn out these PhDs. Because they're in the vanguard, you see, for change. Plan change on behalf of the masters at the top. So a couple of years ago, the climate scientist Mike Hume wrote an interesting book says, called Why We Disagree About Climate Change. I emailed Mike to say it missed out the most fundamental disagreement, its epistemological basis. According to Karl Popper, the 20th century's leading philosopher of science, the essence of the scientific method is critical argument and genuine attempts to refute theories with empirical tests yielding reproducible results. Because we cannot be certain of the truth, we cannot know what is false in science. The truth is approached by discarding what has been proven to be false. From from this, Popper derived the criterion of false viability. The quality of a scientific theory is its capacity to give rise to experiments that in principle could yield empirical evidence that refutes it. Thus, the more a theory precludes, the stronger a theory is. On that basis, what hardened into the scientific orthodoxy underpinning global warming does not meet the threshold of being a scientific theory. Be more accurate to describe it as a conjecture or speculation. Instead, global warming must depend on the preponderance of scientific opinion. 
in turn maintaining the scientific consensus has profound consequences for it brought global warming into conflict with what Pepper called the, the, the essence of the scientific method, which is critical argument and attempts to overthrow it. A conflict between the advocacy requirements of state science and the epistemological demands of the real thing. What he's talking about is a political agenda. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. I'm talking about Robert Darwall, or Darwall his name is, and this article he wrote is very, very good indeed. It's quite lengthy to what we do all, but he just going to tell up the history of the global warming nonsense and so on, uh, using facts, the facts of history most of you actually won't know. It goes into when it first uh, became a kind of theory and, and so on. But it says here, the reason it's become so so strong, this whole idea of global warming, is it says the science is weak. The science is weak to prove it. But see, the idea is strong. And that's what it is. It's a big idea. Remember what you know, Bush Sr. said? The big idea, the New World Order and so on, coming into view. It's a big idea. Ideas are the things that they've got to push out there and then they'll convince you of the idea so you get caught up in it. It's just like a big movement using emotion and so on. The idea is strong, but the science is weak. It's awful lucrative too for the guys, isn't it? He says, when we're talking about science, we're not talking about what John Tyndall found in a test tube, but predicting what happens to temperatures in response to small changes in the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. And it says... Um, it says the science is inherently weak because it's not capable of being falsified in the here and now. It's weak because it doesn't appear to preclude several years of standstill in average global temperature, or even for all I know, declines in average global temperature. Neither does it preclude it snowing in March, contrary to one of the most famous prophecies made by any climate scientist, which was, children just aren't going to know what snow is, predicted David Viner of the University of East Anglia in March 2000. Actually, it's going to be no more snow. Look, look at this year, all over the place. In March. It says, voluminous evidence is itself testament to global warming's weaknesses. Science, as Karl Popper argued in the 1920s, it's almost always possible to find evidence to support a proposition. Come rain or shine, drought or storm, global warming came to acquire the characteristics of plogiston in the 18th century theory of combustion, which is eventually thrown out as being bogus. And um, it goes on and on, but it's, it's very good. It gives you some of the, I, the, the, the things that happened in the early 20th century to do with this whole big idea theory and giving scientists more power. See, scientists want power in every single field, right down to human life itself and remanufacturing, redesigning human life. All kinds of power. This is the scientific tyranny uh, that I said that... Um, Bertrand Russell talked about. He was all for it, as I said. 
And it goes all the way back to Thomas Malthus, because it brings in too many people. There's too many people. Alarm about population growth was popularized by Thomas Malthus, who says at the beginning of the 19th century, a century in which Britain's population nearly quadrupled. Cash wages for factory workers rose 50%, and the purchasing power of money doubled, and life expectancy began its long-term increase. Despite the failure of Malthus's prediction that population growth would be repeatedly checked by famine, disease and war for true believers, the idea that there are or will be too many humans is an article of faith. It cannot be proven. And in 1865, the brilliant economist William Stanley Jevons modified the Malthusian construct. Resource depletion in the form of exhaustion of cheap coal meant the prosperity of Victorian Britain could not last. That was another thing to running out of resources. But since all this stuff he's talking about is combined in the present global warming movement. Jevons made the mistake that every one of his depletionist successors makes. He had not factored in the impact of new technologies and new discoveries. Jevons convinced himself that the steam engine was the furthest mankind could progress. Electrical power was a delusion, and petroleum was merely the liquid of essence of coal, and an expensive one at that. Keynes wrote that Jevons' conclusions were influenced by a psychological trait, which many shared, but was unusually strong in him, of a certain hoarding instinct and readiness to be alarmed by the idea of exhaustion of resources. By contrast, Marx and Engels utterly rejected the notion of capitalist economies being constrained by a fixed resource endowment and static technology. It says we start from the premise that the same forces which have created modern bourgeois society will also suffice to raise the productive powers of each individual so much he can produce enough for the consumption of two, three, four, five, or six individuals. It says, then as the entry of nature into politics in Britain, its entrance occurred between the two world wars, World War I and World War II. And what a strange entrance it was. There was the distributists, prominent amongst them, as they call them, distributists, prominent amongst them, J.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, who believed that every family should have three acres and a cow. Then were, there were these folk, the kindred of the Kibu Kift. Kibu Kift. So those of you familiar with the ancient Kentish language in England will know what Kibu Kift means. For the rest, it means allegedly proof of great strength. Note the North American Indian totem poles and the authentic Anglo-Saxon hoodie and the interesting footwear. They had not progressed to wearing sandals then. In the 1930s, the Kibu Kif started championing economic salvation in the form of Major Douglas's cranky A and B theorem. And more often to the green shirt movement. Did you know there was a green shirt movement in Britain and Europe? They went, they went on marches through London calling for the stringing up of bankers and the payment of the national dividend. It's amazing how little has changed since the 1930s. The green shirts were opposed by Oswald Mosley's black shirts. There were clashes and scuffles between them, leading Parliament to pass the Public Order Act of 1937, which banned uniformed marches. Proto-environmentalism also existed amongst the black shirts and the pre-war circles of Nazi sympathizers. Moses, agricultural advisor who penned this pamphlet for the British Union of Fascists, says after the Second World War edited the Soil Association's journal called, guess what, Mother Earth. Do you know that? The sudden emergence of, of environmentalism as a political movement in the post-war world can be dated with precision to 1962. That's when the big revolutions in America and elsewhere were happening. They called it the youth movement and sexual liberation and all that kind of stuff. 
and the the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. In reality, Silent Spring is a work of fiction and all the more powerful for that. Fiction is more powerful than dry stuff, you see. The political impact of environmentalism following Silent Spring was immense. I go so far to say that Silent Spring is the most consequential book of the post-war era, just ten years separate Silent Spring from the first major UN conference on the environment at Stockholm in 1972. So here's the moment to introduce perhaps the most influential person you've ever heard of. And this is, I said, Barbara Ward. Since I hadn't heard of Barbara Ward until I started researching the book, other than the Queen, Barbara Ward must have been the best connected woman of the 20th century. She was friends with Herbert Morrison and Ernest Bevan. She escorted a young American naval officer, John F. Kennedy, during the 1945 general election. Lyndon Johnson said hers were the only books he ever read. Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister of Britain and Ted Heath, Prime Minister, were both fervent admirers. She was friends with the first generation of African leaders and with Indira Gandhi. And she helped write uh, people in, in cycles. It's that Ward believed in planning and she believed in world government. If you're into all that sort of thing, you would love her. If you're not, you might be surprised at just how much she, she shaped the world in which we live. To avert a threatened third world boycott of the Stockholm conference, Barbara Ward, sipping uh, Dom Perignon with her conference organizer Maurice Strong, as another pal, devised a political formula to insulate the third world's development aspirations from first world environmentalism. The essence of what they came up with is that economic growth is double-edged. In the case of rich countries, growth harms the environment. In the case of developing nations, growth improves the environment. After Stockholm, Barbara Ward fleshed out an alliance of convenience between environmentalism and the third world, which today the world knows as sustainable development. In return for participating in but not being bound by international environmental initiatives, the third world would receive copious flows of development aid. That's your redistribution of wealth that you're going through. Whilst professing a wish, it was not put more strong than that to avoid the developed world's pattern of industrialization. Each country retained its sovereign right to determine for itself the trade-off between development and the environment. In the 1970s and 1980s, this agenda was crystallized in the New International Economic Order. That's the official title of it, the United Nations. It was further developed in the, the Brands Report of 1981 and the Brooklyn Report of 1987. An early and persistent tree of the world's approach down to the present day was, and I'm glad to say, is David Henderson. Writing on the Brandt Report, Henderson criticized the report's view that poor countries couldn't grow without massive flows of aid from north to south. Evidence to the contrary was treated as an, an unfact by the Brand Commission. The belief that economic problems had determinate solutions embodied a definite magical element in which Henderson wrote, Events are treated as though they can be made more predictable and manipulable by formula or spells. The final idea is a preeminent role of science, that science should be mobilized to save the planet. Science is global therapeutics. It was pithily expressed by the first political leader of undoubted world stature to embrace global warming. The problem science has created, science can in fact solve. This was in a 1989 BBC television interview entitled The Greening of Mrs. Thatcher, the Prime Minister. During the age of global warming, this had a number of undesirable consequences, despite their abysmal predictive regard and predisposition to unwarranted pessimism about the future of humanity, and gave scientists an enormously enhanced political role because climate science became the leading branch of global therapeutics. It made climate science too big to fail, and becoming a tool of political advocacy, the nature of climate science became antithetical to science itself. 
What it's called objectively consists solely in the critical approach Popper wrote. Because criticism risked undermining the consensus needed to save the planet, evidence was withheld and criticism delegitimized as serving the interests of malign fossil fuel corporations. It also blinded scientists and governments alike to the inescapable logic of global warming. A ton of carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere has the same physical impact, irrespective of who put it there. Absent a global agreement covering the world's largest economies, even if the scientists are right, decarbonizing the British economy is entirely pointless. Giving all the history, the big surprise about the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Conference is that anyone was remotely surprised at the outcome. When global warming first entered international politics in 1988, it was into a pre-existing set of third-world demands and conditions, most important being that their economic development should not be constrained by environmental obligations. Belief that the third world would agree to limit their fossil fuels ignores the history of the developing world's strictly conditional involvement with first world environmentalism. Going back to the 1972 Stockholm conference, there was never a chance. The leader of the developing world understood better than Western politics or politicians what the French economist Frederick Bastiat found in the 19th century. Bastiat asked, why is famine in Europe uh, had become a thing of the past? The answer was the means of existence rise far above the means of substance. When years of scarcity come, we can give up some enjoyments before encroaching up the necessities of life. So to my final thoughts is the best defense against capricious nature and the best global warming policy is economic growth. And do not do anything that stops us and the, and the developing world from growing. And he says, thank you. And that's summed up there. Folk don't know, too, that Maggie Thatcher ran to get into politics on this whole th- new theory of global warming and so on. So, again, it's used as a tactic by her getting more folk behind her to vote. So, it's all bogus, folks. It's all bogus. And it goes back to this history of it, this mass movement, this emotional, crazy movement. goes back a long ways. And it's tied in with eugenics and Malthusianism and much, much more. But I'll put this link up tonight for those who want to read it. Very good article. Now, Canada, Canada's just said they're going to leave the UN drought agreement. Again, see, we're paying money through all these fake, fake, fake things that keep playing up. And we're going, we're getting bled to the bone, as you well know. Inflation's going up, yada, yada, yada. And we're getting bled to the bone. It says, Canada's leaving a drought treaty, becoming the only UN member to do so. The cabinet issued the order last week but did not announce the move ahead of a convention in Germany next month. The decision seems to have surprised the UN, which apparently only became aware of it when informed during a phone call by the Canadian press. Canada ratified the treaty to fight global drought in 1995, along with 154 countries and the Western and the European Union. The cabinet order authorizes the Minister of Foreign Affairs to take the actions necessary to withdraw on behalf of Canada from the United Nations Convention to combat desertification in those countries experiencing severe drought and or desertification, particularly in Africa. Canada's withdrawal comes ahead of a major convention in Bonn, Germany, to carry out the first ever comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of desertification, land degradation and drought, the UN Environment Programme said. Said there was little benefit in the whole programme. And that's very, very true. Understand all this cash and all these programs go all these big NGOs that just walk around with picnics and so on, strolling over, you know, mountains and all that, taking photographs and taking up little samples of sand here and there, etc. And just writing rubbish, which you get paid an awful, an awful lot for. This is the world they live in. It's just incredible. 
People are living life of Riley on your tax bucks. And there's thousands of organizations doing this nonsense. Now, a warning too to people in the States and elsewhere because the, 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 the Ministry of, of not just Agriculture and Forestry, uh, all the different ministries are involved in this, but there's poisonous M44 sodium cyanide traps getting put into forests and places. Don't let your children or dogs go near them. I'll put a link up tonight to show you the outcome of some people who were walking their dogs and uh, these cyanide things spring up in their dogs' faces. Uh, it gets into their mouths, it activates, and they die of cyanide poisoning. Nasty stuff. One woman was affected with it too. She tried to save her dog. And there's no warnings, nothing. Poisonous M44 sodium cyanide traps. I'll put that up tonight. It's just incredible, folks. Now, most folk don't know there was a Biosecurity Act passed. Biosecurity. On behalf of, guess who? Big Pharma. Who also give you all your vaccinations? See, it's to legitimize the, the, the use of vaccinations and more and more vaccinations, and it's big money for them because they're in cahoots with government who order all this stuff in advance now. For things that will never happen. From stuff that's never been tested. And, um, and now, on, now they're really branching out again. You, you, you give it an idea to bureaucrats and, and new agencies, and they go crazy. They expand into all different areas. I talked about the worms last night. Earthworms are now a danger menace to the planet. <laughs> you know, global warming. And now, of course, birds. Well, birds are part of it too. Pet birds and poultry, avian influenza, and so on. Blah blah. They're talking influenza, and all birds could be affected. So now, birds, all wild birds. And even bird pets are on the on the bio um, the biosecurity list, folks. As they're killing off millions of them to save the farmers' seeds, supposedly. I'll put this link up too. And also, the USDA admits exterminating birds, crops, and bees. I'll put that one up tonight too. It's quite interesting indeed. And I'll put up some night ones tonight too from the from the Department of Agriculture that I put up before a whole list of stuff. They give you actually an annual list of all the, the millions of birds are killing off, all the songbirds and everything. It's happening in Britain too, but most of the public, even the politicians, don't know that it's been done on behalf of saving the big agri-food businesses, boys, the big corporate boys, because they're losing a bit of seed here and there. So they're actually poisoning the birds. All those birds dropping out of the sky, they're all eating this stuff. This poison they're putting out for them. That's why they're dropping out of the sky across the world. They're all at it. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're cutting through the matrix. I'm going to Tom from Wisconsin, if he's still there. Is he there, Tom? Yeah, I'm here, Alan. Can you hear me? Yep. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Hey, um, I'm actually in the kitchen with my girlfriend here at the moment, and I just wanted to share that with everybody, that uh, I'm actually somewhat normal. But um, I basically wanted to ask you two questions real quick and then make just a quick comment. Um, do you Do you personally believe that the controllers of this planet, um, do you believe that they will – eventually try to create a, a merger between their intellect and uh, the computer system, the machines. Um, and do you also believe or know that there will eventually be a rise of the machines 
akin to Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, and then also um, Salvation, Terminator 4, Salvation. And then I also just wanted to quickly comment that, um, you know, my boss at work, like, he's obsessed with golf, mm-hmm. but he really enjoys seeing made-up bumper stickers about um, Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama being the two... Uh, two people on the ticket for the presidential nomination or the presidential run in 2016. And it's like that kind of ridiculousness and entertainment culture that well, the politics is of our, of, of our society. Yeah, politics is entertainment. The, the, the people who put up there are front people. They're just front people, the puppets. And, and the people behind, actually the speechwriter is more important than the president because he's been trained in the universal group that runs the society. And uh, he knows international uh, agenda, and he writes the, the speeches accordingly. The, the guy in front just parrots it off and reads it off a dummy board. So anybody can get put in front of you, it doesn't really matter. But uh, as far as the, the interfacing of computers, and they've been doing that in Sweden. Sweden was one of the first countries to try that. These prisoners in the 1970s onwards, and they actually put live wires straight into computers uh, from the brains of prisoners. And the idea was that down the road they could um, not just manipulate people remotely. Uh, you had Joseph Delgado, for instance. Look at the experiments that he has done with the FBI and CIA and so on. He lost up on Joseph Delgado. But also the elite eventually want to use, they call it unloading engrams into computers, systems. There's articles out there right now on that. They could live forever technically if they can unload all the engrams in their brain into a computer system, and technically they could live forever within that system, much like the Lawnmower Man idea, that movie, Lawnmower Man. So they've been heavily working at that. Plus, Arthur C. Clarke, in his, his books, uh, 2001, 2010, his last one was 3001, and in that system, the ultra-elite who ran everything, all the masses were killed and died off, all the useless eaters, they didn't need them anymore. And it was just an elite that lived a life of Riley, basically, a very happy life. And they had uh, a chip interface with a crown you put on your head uh, once per day. And the computer uh, stopped, it would, would check you out to see if you had any nefarious uh, plans in trying to get dominance over the rest. And so the computer then would, would be the, the arbitrator of who was the most powerful and keep everybody else in check to stop the, the psychopaths at the top killing each other. Because they'd be the only ones who were left then, basically. So they're definitely working on that, and um, I don't see why not that one day they couldn't do it, if not already. I don't see why not, if you let them do it, that is. But mind you, they'll do it to us too, and they won't, won't be to free our minds, they'll be to enslave us completely, completely. Uh, you, you, and they've already said there'll be no such thing for the masses as individualism. You'll be like a herd of people with whispers going through your head back and forth towards central computers, and there was the Borg. Thanks for calling. From Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.